Uh, let me pray really quickly for Kathy. Okay. Lord, um, I just lift up my sister Kathy. Thank you so much for her. Thank you for all the preparation um, that she's put into this lesson. We just ask that you give her clarity, the words, and Lord, help us to just get from this lesson what you want us to. Lord, help us to be equipped as disciple makers. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Good evening. Can you hear me? In his book, Loving God, Charles Colson tells the story of Boris Kornfeld, a Russian Jewish doctor who in the 1950s was in a Russian prison camp. Can you hear now? Hello, testing? I think, I think you might need it. Is that better? Okay. I think it's, yeah, I'm so sorry. Let us just have a little adjustment moment. Put, you know what? Put it on the other ear. think so. Try now. Testing? Testing? Is it better? Okay. Okay. Good evening. In his book, Loving God, Charles Colson tells the story of Boris Kornfeld, a Jewish Russian doctor who in the 1950s was in a Russian prison camp. Well, most probably at one time, he was a supporter of communism. You see, this was post-revolutionary Russia, and there was no way he would have received his level of education without supporting the state. Colson writes, ironically, a few years behind barbed wire was a good cure for communism. The senseless brutality, the waste of lives, the trivialities called criminal charges made men like Kornfeld doubt the glories of this system. Stripped of all past associations, Thoughtful men like Kornfeld found themselves reevaluating earlier beliefs. So it was. This doctor abandoned all of his socialist ideals, but he went one step further. Kornfeld became a Christian. In prison, he enjoyed some of the privileges due to his medical background. He worked in the prison hospital. In this hospital, food was scarce, and many, many patients died of malnutrition. One day he witnessed one of the orderlies eating bread that was supposed to go to one of his patients who had died. It was enough for him. He had seen it many times before, but this time it was different because he was transforming. He reported this orderly to the commandant who was really perplexed. You see, being a stoolie in this camp meant he had effectively signed his death warrant. Well, paradoxically, along with this new anxiety came a new freedom and he wanted to tell somebody about it. 
So one night he confessed to a patient, on the whole, you know, I become convinced that there is no punishment that comes to us in this earth on which is undeserved. But if you go over your life with a fine tooth comb and ponder it deeply, you will always be able to hunt down that transgression for which you are now receiving this blow. Colson writes, what a confession. He went from persecuted Jew to believing we get what we deserve. In effect, Kornfeld declared that night what scripture has been revealing. We are guilty. This week, we see that atonement through sacrifice is necessary because of this very truth. Before God, all humanity is guilty. First, we bear the imputed guilt of Adam. But as Kornfeld stated, so also for our own transgressions. I say this pretty boldly, don't I? But see, I can offer proof. Physical death. Physical death is the consequence of our guilt before God. Now, I know this is not a popular truth, but tonight I'm asking you to allow me to lay this out from not our perspective, but from God's perspective, as scripture reveals it. You see, not only do we share this problem of death, none of us has the power to fix it. Scripture further reveals the one who can solve the problem is also the one who has been offended. If we accept this, then our study this week, Atonement Through Sacrifice, can only be understood or interpreted as God's provision of grace to us. Ready for your first question? Okay, this is our question. And what I was wondering, do the facilitators have the questions? Okay, let's take about 10 minutes. It's an overview of your homework. Did anything challenge you, surprise you, or impact you as you went through these scriptures? And after about 10 minutes, we'll, we'll talk about it. Are all of your questions answered now? All your concerns? Does anybody want to share anything in particular that surprised them? A lot to digest, wasn't it? So let's see if we can unpack some of this. Okay. We're going to talk about a big topic right now, and that is holiness. How would you define holiness? Set apart. Sorry? Set apart. Yes. Excellent. Set apart. Excellent. Anyone else? Pure. Pure. Thank you. Any other thoughts? I'm sorry? Blameless. Blameless, pure, set apart. These are great. Aware of the superior being. Aware of the superior being. Thank you. Well, I went to a theological dictionary, Holman's, and holiness does have to do with separateness, uniqueness, a setting apart. Since there is no other being like God, and he is utterly unique, God alone is majestic in holiness. 1 Samuel 2 says it this way, there's none holy like the Lord, there's none beside you. In scripture, holy has to do primarily with God separating from the world that which he chooses to devote to himself. So think about the devoted things of the tabernacle. He chose those things and set them aside. He set us aside too. 
In the Old Testament, as God's redemptive plan unfolds, the holy ones became associated with the character of God's separated people conforming to his revealed law. But here's the thing. God's perfect holiness, the complete perfection of his attributes, such as his power and his goodness, is a humbling and even terrifying thing when revealed to weak and sinful humans. You know, we can always count on Peter to give us an authentic human response. This is a big block of scripture. Would somebody be willing to read Luke 5, 3 through 8? And we're going to see a human of close to holiness. Let's see how Peter responds. Who's willing to do that? There's more. There'll be more. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now go out where it is deeper and let down your nets, and you will catch many fish. Master, Simon replied, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, we'll try again. And this time their nets were so full, they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat. And soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh Lord, please leave me. I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. Thank you. So this leads us to our key question in Leviticus. How can a holy God dwell with an unholy people? Remember, the redemptive story reveals God's motivation. He wants to dwell with his people. And this was the central idea of our last session back in November. God dwells with his people. Over a quarter of the book of Exodus is devoted to the tabernacle. Tabernacle means to dwell. That's a lot of biblical real estate devoted to one topic. But see, God is setting up a sacred space the tabernacle in which he will dwell with his people. Exodus ends with the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle. So now Leviticus begins with the sacrifices and offerings described so that his people can dwell with him. Now the setting of the book of Levit 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 I'm sorry, Leviticus is at Mount Sinai. The people are camped there for about a year. In the sacrificial system, let's talk about some general things. God allows the animal to die in place of the guilty person. Life is in the blood. Even if the sin is unintentional, God is still offended. Did, did you all know that before you did this lesson? That came about a lot, didn't it? God requires the best of the flock because sacrifice costs something. That's the very nature of sacrifice. The priest mediates between God and the people. Now, I thought about this. I've thought about the generalities of the sacrificial system for many years. Tonight, I thought, let's just outline them. There's five sacrifices. 
Let's bullet point them so we have an idea what's going on. The first one is the whole burnt offering. You're going to see the five sacrifices in one through seven. It's voluntary. If, what surprised me? That there were voluntary sacrifices. Three of the five were voluntary. This one's voluntary. And notice there's a bull, a lamb, a goat, a turtle dove, or a pigeon, all without defect. That's the key. The differences in the animals sometimes had to do with the person's uh, financial situation. But the basic purpose of the whole burnt offering was worship. Next, we have the grain offering or the meal offering. This, too, was voluntary. It's the only non-animal offering, so it couldn't atone. No blood, no atonement. It was a gift of gratitude and worship to God for the harvest. Third, the peace offering or the fellowship offering, also voluntary. They worship God around a shared meal at the Lord's table, something that we did this past Sunday at New City. Part of the offering went to God and the priest, which was pretty normal. What makes this offering different is part of the offering goes to the worshiper and their guests. And for this offering, the animal could vary. Now we move into the sin offering, which is what I thought they all were. This is a mandatory offering. Every Israelite was required to make the sin offering to cover any unintentional violations of God's law. And you see this uh, lineup of peoples? That's how they would have been seen through the sacrificial system. There were sacrifices for priests, the whole community, the leader, and the commoner. Lastly, we have the guilt offering, also mandatory. The purpose of this offering was to look beyond one sin to the damage it had caused. There were three parts. The worshiper brought a male sheep to be offered to God, funds or goods to make restitution, and a 20% penalty was added for that restitution. When one person caused harm to another, forgiveness was necessary to heal the relational breach and restitution necessary to cover the financial breach. Now, you notice I talked about unintentional sins. For many of the intentional sins, death was the penalty. Now we're going to talk about the Day of Atonement. What, what do you know about the Day of Atonement? If I ask you that, what are some of the things that you would say? Thank you. One day a year. Thank you. High priest. Excellent. Anyone else? I'm sorry? Yes, we know today, John Kapoor. Thank you. Yes. Anyone else? Okay, in Scripture, Scripture uses structure for emphasis, and a central position is important. So here we go. We're going to take a look at the diagram of Le Leviticus. And then we'll go into this section in just a minute. The book of Leviticus is the center of the Pentateuch or the Torah. Pentateuch means five scrolls, Torah the law. 
Those five books could be called either Pentateuch or Torah. The books are bookended first by Genesis, meaning beginnings, and then by Deuteronomy. In the beginning, there was the garden. In Deuteronomy, there's preparation for the promised land. From one sacred space to another. You see, God continues in our story to create sacred spaces because as we enter them, we violate them. They're not in the garden anymore. So God creates the tabernacle, and now he's going to create the promised land. The three books in between Genesis and Deuteronomy are Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and they show the journey from slavery to the promised land. Leviticus is in the center of the center books. Now, it's also structured as a chiasm. Okay? What is a chiasm? It's a literary structure in which themes are repeated in reverse order and meet in the center. So we're going to take a look at the chiasm of Leviticus. 1 through 7, chapter, and chapters mirror chapters 23 through 27. So the beginning and the end of the book talk about sacrifices and the festivals or sacred, sacred times. So what is that? On our pyramid, these are statutory laws or sanctuary laws. As the book moves in, we take a look at chapters 8 through 10 and at the end, 21 through 22. This is the priesthood. The first part is the institution of the priesthood and the last part is the legislation of the priesthood. Now, you see the word cultus there? That's how, in the Old Testament time, any religious system would have been referred to. Not cold like we think of. These are the priestly laws. As the book continues, we see 11 through 15 mirrors 17 through 20. We have the clean and unclean in daily life, and then the holy and the profane in daily life. And they meet at the Day of Atonement. You'll notice the first part of the book asks, how do you approach God? The second part of the book, they're in communion with God. What happened? What made the shift? The Day of Atonement. So we see here, the center of the Torah is Leviticus, and the center of this book is the Day of Atonement. The structure tells us, pay attention. This is important. Next thing we need to look at are definitions. Have you seen these words before? Do you know what they mean? They're really important in sacrifice, not only in the Old Testament, but what, also what Jesus has accomplished for us. The first is expiation. It's a payment of what is owed. Redemption involves making a payment, paying a debt to secure freedom. An example of this was the guilt offering. Not only was the animal brought for the guilt, but also restitution plus 20% was made. Propitiation. It's appeasing the offended party. Now, two of the sacrifices that we talked about, the whole burnt offering and the sin offering, as important as they were, they required no restitution. But here's what happened. The worshiper is identified with the animal being sacrificed. Remember, the blood representing life is from the animal and is presented as a substitute for the worshiper. The animal is slain and its parts are ceremonially presented to God, thereby propitiating or appeasing the Lord. And this is key, averting his righteous wrath 
from the worshiper. You see, we don't bear the wrath of God. He graciously allows the substitute to bear that for us because atonement through sacrifice can only be understood or interpreted as God's provision of grace to us. Let's take a look at the components of this day since it's so important. And we're going to begin with verse 1. It's interesting how God starts verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of Aaron's two sons who died when they burned a different kind of fire than the Lord had commanded. Hmm, that didn't just happen. This was an earlier occurrence that happened in chapter 10. However, the Lord begins his instructions to Moses by recalling this event. So we have repetition here. He's bringing that to our attention. In verse 2, the Lord says to Moses, Warn your brother Aaron not to enter the most holy place behind the inner curtain whenever he chooses. The penalty for intrusion is death. Why? The ark's cover, the place of atonement, is where I, myself, am present in the cloud over the atonement cover. In these two verses, we see that both timing and approach matter to God. Since we talked about the high priestly line, let's just take a little review here. Aaron is the first high priest, right? What was he doing? Remember when Moses was on the mountain in Exodus? Uh, what was um, Aaron doing? Do you remember? The golden calf. Was, was he part of the group or did he lead the group? And you know what else he did? He built something in front of that calf. Remember what it was? The altar. He builds the altar to the calf. Now let's take a look at his direct heirs, the sons Nadab and Abihu. What do we find out they just did? Strange fires, right. So the human high priestly line is off to a great start. Okay, let's look at this ceremony again. Throughout the year, all the sacrifices offered by the worshipers, let's think this has gone on on those five that we were talking about, for sin and impurity at the sanctuary meant the sanctuary itself needed per periodic cleansing. Did you know that? I always thought the Day of Atonement was about the high priest and the people, but it also included the actual place. Why? Well, the Lord would continue residing there, his presence, once it was cleaned. Because due to the excessive contact with human faults and sins, the sanctuary could become polluted. So three entities were being cleansed that day. The Day of Atonement occurred, as we heard earlier, once a year on the 10th day of the seventh month, September, October, typically when Yom Kippur is celebrated. As we said also, the high priest and only the high priest could enter the sanctuary and only one day a year. The high priest was required to fully bathe. Now, for some sacrifices, he could simply wash his hands. But today, he would fully bathe. He would be dressed in his pure linen garments, and this represented purity. The, sermon begins, the ceremony begins with the high priest first offering a bull as a sin offering for him and his family. Now, remember the two sons were burned by the incorrect fire? The reason he burns incense before the mercy seat in the inner sanctuary was to provide a shield of smoke protecting the high priest from God's lethally glorious presence. 
Bible journey has a great visual for this. Imagine, if you will, the sun, S-U-N. What does it do? It's necessary for life. It gives light, energy. Our food supply is so dependent on it. But a human cannot come in any close proximity to the sun without being destroyed. That's what God's holiness is. We cannot come to that presence. So he allows the incense to be a buffer. Next, what he does is he sprinkles the bull's blood on and in front of the mercy seat. Next thing, he casts lots over two goats. Now the people are involved. One was offered as a sin offering for all the people. The other was presented as a scapegoat. The blood of the goat for the people and the bull for the high priest were then mixed and applied to the horns of the altar to make atonement for the sanctuary. So now we have the high priest, we have the people, and the sanctuary. The high priest then confessed all the people's sins over the head of the live goat, which was led away and released in the wilderness. One of the commentators I looked at referred to the scapegoat as a garbage truck. Now following the ceremony, the high priest bathed again and now put on his usual garments. He then offered a burnt offering for himself and the people. What was the burnt offering about? Do you remember? The, for basic what? Worship. Worship, right. Now the work, okay. The bodies of the bull and the goat used in the day's ritual were then burnt outside the camp. While all this was going on, what were the people doing? Well, the high priest was cleansing the sanctuary and the camp on their behalf. The Israelites participated by fasting. This was the only required fasting day in their calendar, self-denial. And they rested from work or a Sabbath. Remember we said holiness is being set apart or separated? Observing the Sabbath set the Israelites apart from all other nations. So what was the result of all this? Leviticus 30 tells us, on this day, atonement will be made for you. You will be cleansed from all of your sins in the Lord's presence. The result was success. And the Lord's closing instructions at the end of this chapter. In future generations, so it's going to go on, the atonement ceremony will be performed by the anointed high priest who serves in the place of his ancestor Aaron. Now we have succession. He will put on these garments and make atonement for the most holy place, tabernacle, altar, priest, and the entire community. This is a permanent law for you to make atonement for the Israelites once a year. Moses followed all these instructions that the Lord had given to him. So chapter 16 ends on a high note, success and obedience. Well, I want to thank you that, we, that you went through looking all this with me. So here's our next table discussion question. Do you think these laws and ceremonies described are over the top? It's a safe place. It's a time to discuss it. If you do, why do you feel this way? If no, why not? And the second part of this is, what if your only understanding of God is from the context of the book of Leviticus? So what's your assessment of them? And 10 minutes. <laughs> Get that all resolved. Thank you. <laughs> so let's take a poll. 
How many people think the system was, uh, the sacrificial system was over the top? Let's take a poll. Okay, how many do not? Okay. Would anybody like to share their assessment of God to this point? What do you think? Any thoughts? Anyone want to share? It's a safe place now. We're here to, to wrestle around with ideas. Any assessment of the Lord at this point? He's holy. He's holy. Right. Yes. Well done. So now we move on to the book of Hebrews. I believe our assigned reading in Hebrews, chapters 9 and 10, clearly demonstrated Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Great job of lining them up. So I want to explore a few other things that Hebrews reveals. First, Hebrews 1, verse 3 states, The sun reflects God's own glory, S-O-N, sun, and everything about him represents God exactly. He sustains the universe by the mighty power of his command. After he died to cleanse us from the stain of sin, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God of heaven. In scripture, sitting down means your work is finished. And he finished the work of cleansing us from the stain of sin. But I want to narrow in on this phrase. Everything about him represents God exactly. So let's go back to our problem. Because of our guilt, we will die. In spite of this, God still loves us perfectly. But God's attribute of perfect justice demands both expiation and acceptable payment be made, right? And his perfectly justified wrath demands propitiation to be appeased. But here's the thing. God does not act outside of or in contradiction to his character. Now, this might be a pretty interesting philosophical question, right? If God is the offended party and God has all power, can he do whatever he wants to do? I mean, haven't you thought about that? Why couldn't God just arbitrarily just forgive everybody? That's a great philosophical question. Because he didn't create us that way. Good point. And the thing is, this question cannot be answered definitively by philosophical speculation. But this question is settled by theological revelation. And scripture tells us God does not act outside of or in contradiction to his character. So something must be done. And God, in his magnanimous grace, resolves our problem because there is a place where his perfect justice intersects his perfect love. One attribute does not overtake or lessen the other. At the cross, perfect love and justice are held in perfect tension because of whom was on that cross. At the cross... God was on full display. The Gospel of Mark records an unexpected declaration of Jesus' identity at the moment of his death. And here's the thing. It wasn't from an, an apostle or a disciple or even an Israelite, but a common 
Roman soldier who witnessed the crucifixion. Here's what Mark tells us. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last. When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, he exclaimed, truly, this was the Son of God. You see, everything about him represents God exactly. Okay, second. The reason our access to God is not limited as it was in the Old Testament is because our status from guilty to righteous, right with God, has changed because we are in Christ. Romans 5.17. For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ? For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. Now I submit to you that even in the context of looking at the entire Old Testament sacrificial system, this is the most radical thing I have said tonight. And here's why. The Old Testament system makes sense intuitively, right? I've injured someone, so I make restitution. I'm guilty, so I pay a price or a penalty through sacrifice. My community of faith, we recognize our guilt, so once a year, our official representative performs specific rites and ceremonies while we fast and abstain from work. We get that. But here, our status changes from guilty to righteous, right with God, by receiving a gift. This is a radical shift in human thought. And I would like to suggest something. Since we're talking about sharing the gospel and making disciples, let's be aware when we share our faith with others, they may not be ready for this. It's radical. Not everybody grows up in a loving environment or an accepting environment. So we need the Holy Spirit. We need to pray for these people to prepare their hearts to receive this. It's radical. Third, Hebrews confirms what the Gospels proclaim and the Old Testament anticipates. It confirms what the Gospels proclaim and the Old Testament anticipates. There is only one way to God, to eternal life. Therefore, it's fair to say Jesus is exclusive. And the current perception of exclusive is negative. It is a trigger word, and no one wants to be seen today in a negative light. But think about this. When Jesus walked on the earth, one of the main criticisms given to him by the Jewish leaders was he was what? Too inclusive. Remember, he sat at, with sinners and ate. They didn't like that. And one of his 12 inner circle used to work for the Romans. He was a tax collector. And in John 4, in the light of day, Jesus is sitting with a woman who is a Samaritan. And I love what, they, what John writes. The, gospel, the, the apostles find him. They're surprised, but they don't say a word. He was too inclusive. 
right? So exclusive just happens to be one of the obstacles to him in our day. Yet the church's mission to make disciples hasn't changed. The way to eternal life hasn't changed. What has changed is simply the current perception of the word exclusive. Now, are there any sales or marketing people in this room? Isn't part of your training to anticipate objections and to be ready to overcome them? So we're going to do a third table discussion tonight, okay? And it's going to be application. Now, your table leaders have this scenario, but let me just read the whole thing to you. You have a good, long-time friend who knows you are a Christian because you have lived out your faith well. Your friend is a nun, N-O-N-E. Faith is not a big factor. They live a good life, but faith is just not a good factor. Your friend approaches you and asks, I know your faith is important to you, but I don't understand how someone as intelligent and tolerant as you can still believe there's only one way to God. See, I want what you have. Do I really have to believe that? Now, your friend isn't looking for a debate. Your friend is truly seeking. You have 10 minutes to solve it. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Is it, is it all solved now? Are you going to share your great insights? Any ideas on how to, how to help this dear friend? Any ideas? Jump this hurdle? Thoughts? Anyone want to share? Has anyone ever had this experience? There was a lot of talking. Thank you. Anyone else? Yes. I'll share this. Just uh, I didn't share this at my table, but years ago I tried to share the gospel with a young man, and I thought I'd start out with a basic foundation, and I said, uh, have you ever done anything wrong in your life? And for 30 seconds, which felt like an eternity, he sat there in silence and finally concluded, no, I could pretty much justify anything I've ever done. And at that point, years ago, I did not know where to go from there. Yes. It's too bad he didn't, too bad he didn't know Boris Kornfeld, right? He could have just told him, right? We're all guilty. Yes, I know. It's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's the challenge of the church today, right? Yes, great point. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Anyone else? Thank you. Well said. Thank you. Yes. I would turn it around and say that the fact that we have to believe that there's only one way to God 
Thank you. Thank you, Whitney. Excellent. Thank you. Yes. When I was in college and had never heard the gospel, believe it or not, I grew up in North Carolina, had never heard the gospel. Um, I was in, involved in transcendental meditation at the time. And uh, a young man got a hold of my arm when I was just a little bit watching on the steps. You know the school. I can show you where it was. <laughs> and he said, Can I ask you a question? I was a freshman. You know, I thought, Where's the bowling alley? I'm looking forward to it. You know? Oh. The gospel. So we went through some things, and, and then he took me to the scriptures and said, you know, I'll go look through the Bible and see what it says. That's the book that prophets tell us about. You know, back to John 14, 6, of course. And then a whole lot of other scriptures over the course of about three hours that night. Thank you for sharing. Christ used that same method, asking questions. So thank you. And thank you for sharing that. There you go. Thank you for sharing that personal story. Thank you. Okay. Anyone else? Well, I have to tell you, you really hit it. A lot has to do with how we do it. See, the exclusiveness of Jesus Christ has nothing to do with keeping people away from God. It has everything to do with showing people the way to God. See, God doesn't reject us. He allows us to reject him. So what I heard in these answers, you hit it. We're going to take back the language, but we're going to use wisdom intact because of whom we represent. Right? We represent the king. We're his ambassadors. Sometimes in our insistence on options, we run the risk of missing our desired destination. Who would walk into an airport, and the more important thing is the plane, where you sit on the plane, uh, the number of the flight, what time it gets in, but I don't need to know the destination, as long as all those things are taken care of. Right? That's important, right? Remember, we can't solve our problem, so we heed the one who can solve the problem. But like you all so expressed so well tonight. It really is on us on how we do it. And we need to think about these things, ponder these things. Maybe we have an experience that didn't work out in the past. Think it through. Christ is not the problem. 
It's the way we present them. Last slide. Just to cement in our minds, would somebody please read Revelation 7, 9. This is who John saw in heaven. Who did he see? Yes. After this, After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. Thank you. This is the desire even of the secular world, right, that we all be together, everybody. Look who resolves and solves that for us, Christ. So before we move on to uh, numbers, I have just a general question. We can't leave without talking about the law. What are, why do you think are some of the reasons God gave the Israelites the law? Can't do it on their own. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you, Carrie. Yes. Mm -hmm. Anyone else? Yes. Thank you, Tammy. Any other thoughts? Thank you. Excellent. Anyone else? Great point. Thank you. Yes. Anyone else? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yes, indeed, yes. Mm -hmm. All of your answers were correct. Many reasons for the law. But I'd like to share one other. This is from a Daniel Block in the NIV application commentary. Into the dark world, the law of Moses shines, its beacon of glory and grace. Israel's God has revealed himself. Israel's God has declared the boundaries of acceptable and unacceptable conduct. And Israel's God has provided a way of forgiveness that actually solves the human problem of sin. All the things that you said. But even as Moses recognizes Israel's extraordinary privilege of the bearer of God's revealed will, Moses also declares the nation's missionary function. In the plan of God, through the obedience of his people, they would demonstrate their greatness to the nations and so fulfill the promise to the ancestors and serve as agents of worldwide blessing. Who did God say that to? Who said all nations will be blessed for you? Abraham, yes. To borrow the language of Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.3, Israel was to be a letter from God to the world. Not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Sadly, we know the nation as a whole failed in this mission. And the individuals within the nation who fulfilled this calling were rarely more than a remnant. But Israel's failure doesn't negate neither God's grace or the power of the law to yield life when treasured with proper perspective. Remember, the law is from God, so it's good. Israel's failure testifies to the hardness of the human heart. Our charge given to us by Jesus is the Great Commission. 
And again, we're going to take a look at Paul's interpretation. This is further down in 2 Corinthians verse 5, chapter 5, verse 17. We all know this one. We have become new creations. We're made new. The old has gone. The new has come because we're in Christ. But Paul continues in verse 18. All this newness of life from God who brought us back to himself through what Christ did. We're now set apart and we're now holy and we've been given the mission. So we continue still in 5, 17, 18, and now 19. And God has given us the task of reconciling people to himself. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And this is the wonderful message God has given us to tell others. We are Christ's ambassadors. We just have to do it in our day. Think about we have a responsibility to him and the receivers. Okay, that was Leviticus and Hebrews. Okay, we're going to do numbers now, but I promise we're going to do an overview, and numbers is going to put us back into the actual timeline of our story. After the Israelites have camped for about a year at Mount Sinai, they're ready to move on. Although the book of Numbers is so named because it begins and ends with a census, in the Hebrew Bible, this book is called In the Wilderness, which is a much more accurate description. Now, this week we looked at Numbers 14, and at this point, the slow to anger God is angry. The persistent lack of trust on the part of the Israelites is the problem. <coughs> Regardless of God's revelation to them, his miraculous signs on their behalf, they continue to grumble and complain. It has been consistent and persistent. More than once, they want to return to slavery. They rebel against God's chosen leaders. And remember, they gave the glory for their release from slavery to a metal calf that they themselves built. Now this time, 10 of 12 men are chosen to scout out the promised land. They return from the land and spread fear among the people. The obstacles are too great, they say. The inhabitants are too big and strong. Only two, Joshua and Caleb, look to God and not to the circumstances. But the people won't listen to them. So God renders judgment and sends a plague to destroy them. But Moses intercedes and the Lord relents. He won't kill all of them, but instead of the plague, he will now um, make them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until this generation dies. You see, God really granted their desire. They really didn't want to go forward with God. They didn't want to realize his promises, so he turns them back. After this generation has died, there's a census. The census is the younger generation who are now at the plains of Moab, east of the Jordan River, across from Jericho. They're looking at the promised land. It is here on these plains that Moses will prepare this generation to enter the promised land. The redemptive story continues in the book of Deuteronomy. Deutero means second. Nami comes from the Greek word namus, meaning law. Deuteronomy means second law. But you see, it's not a new law. It's a new generation. The new generation going forward points to God's provision of, of grace. Our story continues. But before we close, if you remember when I stood up here back in October, I issued a challenge. I asked 
that you would read Romans 12, 1 and 2 every day until it was memorized. Now, I didn't know then that the next time I would be here, the subject would be sacrifices and offerings. Look, we looked at the Old Testament sacrificial system. We looked at the sacrifice of Jesus. And I think it's remarkable that we can sacrifice or offer ourselves to God. So, remember, Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, dear brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, mercy, God withholds what we deserve because Jesus bore the wrath due us for us because he is our propitiation. We can offer our bodies as holy and living sacrifices, pleasing to God because now we are holy. We are holy because Jesus paid the ransom to free us from our guilt. He's our expiation. This is our act of worship, and ours is spiritual. Now, verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by renewing of your mind. Train station. (laughs) So that we can discern God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. By the way, next Sunday, this is the passage. It seems to me that the Holy Spirit is alive and moving at New City. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have provided for us because of your great love, mercy, and grace. We desire to know and then obey your will as our act of gratitude to you and to worship you. Thank you for this continued story. And thank you because of Jesus. It is our story too. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. I'll send you guys the slides this week um, of Kathy's PowerPoint. And if you can help clean up tonight, let us know. We'd appreciate some help.